0: Welcome back to the program. On the evening of November 26, 2008, heavily armed Pakistani terrorists raced to infiltrate the five-star Taj Mahal Palace Hotel. At the same time, as part of a coordinated attack, other tourist sites in Mumbai were also attacked. Throughout Mumbai, more than 160 people were killed in the two-day siege. The Indian Commission, charged with studying what happened and why, did a remarkably poor job of gathering and reporting the facts. Now we have perhaps the best and most official account yet in a new book by two British journalists, Adrian Levy and Kathy Scott-Clark. The book is The Siege, 68 Hours Inside the Taj Hotel, and it is my pleasure to welcome Kathy Scott-Clark and Adrian Levy to the program today. Kathy, Adrian, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank
0: you. Good morning. Great to have you here. Kathy, start with you for those that particularly here in the States that may not remember. Talk a little bit about what happened on that November morning.
2: It was, um, well, a a very small dinghy was coming from uh, Pakistani waters, uh, originally from Karachi, with uh, 10 young, highly trained men on board who had backpacks full of bombs and explosives and grenades and food to keep them going. And they uh, they docked a small fishing colony in South Mumbai, which is actually very, very close to the sort of heart of the tourist area, but, but actually not very well policed. And they arrived actually in the evening about 8.30 p.m. and they spread out across the city. Some of them took taxis, some of them went on foot. And they had pre um, predetermined targets, which they had plumbed into satellite phones with GPS coordinates. And they simultaneously attacked in four different locations and kept the city of Mumbai under siege for the next three days
0: Adrian, Cathy talks about the, the GPS phones and everything else that they had talk about the technology and the way that these young terrorists were constantly in touch with people back in Pakistan
1: Yeah, this is one of the most extraordinary elements of, um, of the attack on, on Mumbai, which is also commonly known as Bombay um, the fact that uh, the terrorists were armed themselves with uh, mobile phones hooked up to um, an Internet telephony service, um, very similar to Skype, which relayed back to a control room in Pakistan um, in Karachi, which is the port city in the south. Um, And in that control room, there were banks of TV sets where the controllers were monitoring um, CNN news. They were monitoring... um, uh, all kinds of cable news coming out of India. They had Google Earth so that they could navigate through Mumbai. They had the GPS coordinates uh, from early reconnaissance missions done in the city to identify where the five-star hotels were, where the transit points were, and uh, you know, where they could set off various bombs at choke points in order that they could create the impression that an army had invaded Mumbai when, in fact, it was just 10 men. And all of this kind of high-tech equipment and all of the practice, the rehearsal, the funding, the, uh, the equipping, the logistics came in at around 40,000 U.S. dollars. So what you're looking at is an incredibly small amount of money to hold hostage to the world's fourth largest city.
2: It was remote control terrorism.
1: Yeah, kind of ventriloquism, really.
0: And, and you tell the one particular story, which is just so remarkable, about a hostage that's taken, I think, inside the Taj Hotel itself, where one of the attackers calls back and does a Google search on one of the hostages.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what what other way to do it? I mean, you, there's 500 guests in there, you don't know who anyone is, and they literally, they, we have the recordings of them speaking on the phone and having no idea because the guy wasn't speaking straight about who he was, he was scared and he was pretending to be a teacher when in fact he was actually a very, very influential bank manager, Indian. Um, and, and they ring back to the handlers and they say, well, what does he look like? Uh, is he wearing glasses? Has he got a bald head, um, what, what's the back of his hair like and, and you can hear the sort of tapping on the, on the keyboard at the other end on, on the tape recording and, and the handlers say well hang on I think this guy is, uh, is Mr Ramamorsi who's a bank manager so that means you have found a very very high value hostage so I mean it was literally done on the hoof like you would do any kind of reporting activity.
0: The Taj Hotel is a remarkably large place. It was filled with some 600 guests, 1,600 employees, and we're talking about 10 terrorists in total. Talk about that disproportion in numbers and why, given that, it was so hard to do anything about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary if you think about it. I mean, the numbers of people inside the hotel and yet only four gunmen, actually were chosen to, um, to hold that hotel hostage. What they had on their side was uh, the absence of any, or pretty much any practical um, security in the hotel, as the hotel had found um, in its mind that um, um, high-scale um, security um, was incompatible with um, um, creating the, uh, the illusion of the luxury environment of a five-star hotel. I mean, this is one of the most luxurious and historic hotel palaces um, in India. But the second thing, which is crucial to this, Um, a crucial mistake that was made. The police decided to sit it out, with the exception of six brave officers who went inside countermanding their orders. And they sat down and waited for the Indian special forces to arrive, which would take another 12 hours. And in that 12 hours, the four gunmen became acclimatised, familiarised with the strange environment of the Taj Hotel, which meant that they then had the advantage.
2: I think one thing I'd like to add is also the physical um, set-up of the hotel prolonged the whole thing because, because basically it's a very historic building it had, had different bits added at different times yep. and there was the front of house and the, the back, behind the scenes and the behind the scenes sections the staff areas and the kitchens were incredibly complicated and higgledy-piggledy and the staff of the hotel who were the real heroes that night they made use of all of the interconnecting kitchens and corridors and all these little kind of get-throughs through various roofs and areas that the, only they knew about they used all of these um, behind-the-scenes areas to save a lot of guests and keep them hidden, um, which meant that the, that the terrorists had to spend that much longer time trying to find people.
1: And yet, by the same token, the labyrinthine nature of the hotel made it amazingly difficult for the special forces when they eventually did arrive. The hotel itself could not provide a blueprint. Uh, the architect had gone missing. And that meant that navigating as an outsider through the backstage areas, the front-of-house areas, was extraordinarily difficult.
0: And yet yet the gunmen, the four gunmen in the hotel and the terrorists as a group knew more about the inside of that hotel than the special forces did when they arrived.
2: Well, they did because they'd had had someone inside the hotel on many, many occasions over seven different uh, surveillance trips who was just a remarkable character. The comedian character of David Headley, half American, half Pakistani, who had Stayed in the hotel. His tickets and and his uh, bill paid for by lashkar e and he had cased the joint, and he he logged all the GPS waypoints, and he had photographed every section of the hotel that he could possibly visit, and and he had given them that that kind of window into an exclusive world that they would never otherwise have been able to see.
0: Kathy, talk about lashkar e Who was it? What is it? Etc.
2: Well, lashkar e is a Pakistani jihadi group which, which was originally uh, created by the uh, intelligence agencies the the infamous ISI and it was created with the express intention of fighting a, a proxy war in, uh, in Kashmir against the um, the Indian security forces that they see as occupying the Indian side of Kashmir. Um, but in recent times uh, Lashkar, has had be- recent years before Mumbai. Lashkar had become a little more unwieldy and a little less under the control of the ISI, and they were having their own internal debate as to whether or not they should be broadening their scope and looking at, uh, at fighting in areas beyond Kashmir, because they were losing out um, in publicity terms and in terms of recruitment and funding and everything to Al Qaeda, which was becoming more and more famous, and no one really sort of thought about Lashkar anymore. So there's a big internal debate as to whether or not they should attack different targets and go beyond Kashmir. And, Mumbai was, to cut a long story short, Mumbai was the, um, was, was the result of that debate. They decided to launch themselves on the international stage against international targets and at the same time hitting their old enemy, India.
0: Adrian, you report in the book that there were at least 26 separate incidents where there were clues that should have led authorities to the fact that something was about to happen in Mumbai.
1: This is extraordinary. You know, I mean, David Headley, um, who Cathy's described this hybrid, half Pakistani, half American, had been working for American intelligence as well. Um, And he was feeding back information on the Mumbai plot. Um, And uh, these bulletins, mostly from the CIA, but also from other intelligence agencies in the West and in the Gulf states, were passed to the Indians. The first one coming in 2006, the last one shortly before the raids, and then giving pretty much um, um, a good idea of what would happen a raid coming by sea, Mumbai the city being targeted, the Taj Hotel, the five star Oberoi Hotel, the transport nexus being targeted, the methodology also that gunmen with AK-47s, and small amounts of explosives, the fact that it would be a suicide squad, as well as a marine landing at night, and therefore all of these strands were given and passed over um, to to the um, Indian intelligence, and yet they were never really developed, they were never really taken seriously, um, so um, in that sense, you could say that Indian intelligence dropped the ball.
0: Why do we think that was, Kathy? Why did Indian intelligence fail so miserably in picking up any of these clues?
2: Yeah, they they had no idea about the source. They had no idea that uh, David Headley existed, that he was writing inside lashkar e They they were just getting the kind of the basic information from the Americans. And and I guess they also, I mean, there are constantly um, reports coming through that that. Pakistani groups are, are planning to attack various locations in in India because the countries are sort of semi-at-war most of the time. But um, Adrian, what do you think? Why do you think the reason is that they just...
1: I think there are systemic failures. You know, w- what was very, very worrying um, for... Um, for um, and it's being hotly debated um, in India at the moment is the inability of... Uh, you know, you'll be familiar with this in America after the 9-11 Commission of the foreign intelligence to talk to the domestic intelligence, just as the CIA and the FBI fell out terribly um, in the 9-11 Commission over the genesis of 9-11. Um, and the same thing existed, you know, stove piping of intelligence by rival agencies, the inability to pass it down to the local level in Mumbai. I mean, India is a vast subcontinent with a billion plus people. And, uh, you know, I think that was a, a key issue and one that's still being debated today. And a failure, um, really, to develop the lessons learned Aspect. I mean, uh, you know, after 9-11, the 9-11 Commission was very effective, I think. After 7-7 in London, uh, you know, there was a massive amount of soul-searching about our failures. The failure of our intelligence service, Mm -hmm. who was monitoring the terrorists who attacked London, to capture those terrorists, even though we were surveying them. And um, in India, 26-11 happened, and afterwards there was a report which was 64 pages long. And I think that failure to hold anyone to account to Properly mine and explore what had happened. That has caused huge un- unrest in India.
2: I, I think just one thing to add as well that, that the failure to sort of respond to the mounting threats and warnings also is is, is down to the fact of lack of resources. I mean, the police on the night in Mumbai, mm. the police in Mumbai still today are armed with uh, basically Second World War rifles. They have um, body armour. If they have any body armour, it, it's um, it doesn't. It's ineffective. They don't have helmets. I mean, it's just a case of economics.
0: What did the CIA know? What did American intelligence know that, in fact, they did not act on with respect to further informing Indian intelligence? Adrian?
1: I think that there is an increasing a mounting, um, amount of information um, that shows that elements of the American intelligence community knew a whole lot about uh, the threat to Mumbai, the nature of that threat. They, they knew extraordinary amounts about um, lashkar e the, 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 the outfit that was behind it. Um, they uh, had penetrated that outfit with one, of the, with one or more of their own agents. And they'd also been presented, I mean, this is critical, with a dossier of evidence warning that Lashkar was about to strike by French and British intelligence in 2007. That was handed to the White House, the national security team surrounding George W. Bush, and in it, in exceptional detail, um, and it describes how Lashka has, is developing a global potential. It had been casing London, looking at London hotels, also looking at New York and Washington, D.C. for targets in the States. And yet the feeling at that time was that Pakistan was a security client of America. It was the bulwark in the war against terrorism, the war against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And the result of that is that um, the, the White House chose to do nothing because Lashkar taiba was seen as the pet of the Pakistan military, and it was felt that it would be politically inappropriate for the CIA to wade in and alienate their allies in Pakistan. An extraordinary story.
0: And this is, of course, while the search for Osama bin Laden was still going on.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And here you have an American, David Headley, carrying an American passport inside the Islamist movement in Pakistan, who's known by emails and intercepts to be edging very close to al-Qaeda and one particular al-Qaeda military commander hiding in the tribal areas of Pakistan. And that means that at that time, in 2008, an American was close to the leadership of al-Qaeda at a time when decapit- de- decapitating al-Qaeda, uh, 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 nabbing Osama bin Laden, was still the prime objective of the CIA. Remember, this is several years before he was finally run to ground in Abbottabad. Mm-hmm.
0: What do we know about the degree to which ISI, the Pakistani intelligence and, and secret service, was involved? And what do we know about this double agent that you talk about in the book, Kathy?
2: Well, we we, we know that that because Lashko Toiba had been created by the ISI specifically, that that, that they had very close ongoing relations with between the uh, between individual ISI agents who've been deputed to work with Lashka and and with with Lashka operatives who in many cases were former army officers, former ISI um, agents as well and there is plenty of evidence that individual officers from the army and from the ISI, named officers, well named with with not their real name, um, were actively involved in the plotting and the planning and the execution and the arming of uh, of the group that went into Mumbai but I think Claims that, that, that on an, an institutional level the ISI planned and uh, helped Mumbai uh, are not true um, I think, and the fact that the, the civilian government um, was completely oblivious to what was going on I think is um, evidenced by the fact that the foreign minister, the Pakistani foreign minister had just flown into India that day, the day of the attacks and was staying at the Taj sister hotel in Delhi Um, and was there for a very important, groundbreaking diplomatic mission to improve relations between himself and the Foreign Minister of India. So there is no evidence that the the civilian government of Pakistan was, um, was in any way complicit with this.
0: But it's certainly further evidence of the rogue nature of the ISI itself, Adrian.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what emerges is how little we really know about their operating structure. I mean, we talk to many people who um, um, are uh, uh, operating, have operated alongside ISI or have retired from ISI, and um, the impression you get um, is that they have, for example... um, superficially a structure which is not that dissimilar from the cia in terms of uh, you know how it operates and how it breaks down in, in divisions units and directorates but actually um, some of these are so uh, embedded and have been for 30 years that they themselves have become like the people they're meant to be controlling so the jihad um, outfit that controls wields, and manipulates um, islamist factions against india and against uh, america in afghanistan and western interests in Af- afghanistan some of those people um, have spent 30 years doing that job and are no longer can be said to be controlled directly by ISI. They operate in a very grey area, which makes them extremely untrustworthy and very very uh, opaque. It's very hard to understand who, whose side they're on. Yeah, um, and,
2: and they feed, they feed off that, um, that kind of mystique and, and, and allure of being a, a strange and dangerous agency. I mean, they deliberately de- develop that and they, they permeate that within pa- Pakistani society. I mean, when you're there in the country, I was there a couple of weeks ago and you're talking to senior officials Police officers and government agents—they won't actually say the word ISI. Yes, they will just say they'll say that that our friends or (laughs) the agencies or the security people. People are too frightened to even use the name the ISI inside. Pakistan itself.
1: and quite a good snapshot of how this can work and the ramifications of that and um, we shadowed um, the um, Pakistan's equivalent of the FBI which is called the FIA and um, it's, um, it was given the poison chalice of investigating the Mumbai attacks within Pakistan and yet these guys who are career intelligence officers from the civilian sector and career policemen who um, um, are charged with investigating it know that if they probe too deeply things can get extremely uncomfortable um, very, very soon. And so they themselves have to steer a very, very careful political course between uh, you know, what they would like to ascertain and what can be ascertained safely. So it is a quagmire.
2: And, and one of, one of the, in fact, one of the prosecutors that we met uh, while we were doing the research for the book was uh, subsequently gunned down in Islamabad in his car. So that, that threat, if you go too close and to go beyond your remit and start delving too deeply into ISI business, is definitely there.
0: What has been the overall impact with respect to the relationship between India and Pakistan since this attack?
2: Well, I
1: think this attack became a watershed uh, for the um for the um, more hawkish element within the uh, understandably actually with, within the, uh, the the Foreign Service and within the military to completely cut off ties with pakistan i mean i 've heard, heard it said to me by um, uh, ambassadors and senior civil servants in India that we should do what in, uh, we should do what Israel does. we should now build a wall effectively uh, rather than concrete between the, our two countries and just let them collapse on their own and have nothing to do with them um, this attack really between two Nuclear powers um, caused an enormous uh, amount of mistrust and uh, deep, felt, uh, deep felt anxiety uh, soul searching really about what India could do about Pakistan
2: so it's set, set back relations between the two countries by at least a decade it's still not recovered even five years on today. I mean, Absolutely. You, talk, you talk about it. You talk about Mumbai in Pakistan or in India, and there's still an awful lot of bitterness I mean the fact that the Pakistani authorities have <clears throat> arrested ten. Uh, lashkar uh people, cadres who were involved in the operation they're still sitting in jail, they've not been prosecuted yet I mean that's a real bone of contention and you mentioned the word Mumbai and it just sets off a whole debate every single time with whichever side of the board you are on
1: yeah, it's, it's extremely critical and I think the nature of the attack as well um, it was a huge humiliation for, uh, for, for India it felt humiliated that so few people could hold such a large city to hosti- hostage and it was a huge wake-up call in the West too I mean, you know, what you could see afterwards was police chiefs and intelligence agents from all over the West from America, Britain and across Europe arriving in Mumbai to understand what had happened there because we subsequently learned that London too had been targeted as had New York and other American cities and if you think about the... Na- of that attack, you know, a nighttime attack uh, where hotels and meeting places are targeted I mean, you know, this is a different kind of dynamic
2: and as we've seen recently in, uh, in Kenya, it's happening again it is, it is the kind of terrorism of this future is, is mainstream civilian based targets which can be broadcast on TV and prolonged, you take, you take hostages you get a stronghold, you stay in there as long as possible and then you fight to the death And you get tons and tons of airtime.
0: Talk a little bit about whether or not it was a wake-up call for the Indian authorities in terms of their ability to respond to this kind of thing, perhaps in the future. You mentioned the the report that was done that really held nobody accountable. Was there any learning that went on at all with, with respect to the Indian authorities?
1: I think very little. I think it's, uh, this is one of the most depressing elements of it, actually. I think uh, the special forces, um, who are known as the Black Cats, who in the end, although they arrived 12 hours late for uh, reasons uh, which were not really strictly to do with them, there was a political dogfight, which meant that there was no plane to transport them, no pilots, no lifting gear, no buses, etc., to, uh, to demobilise and mobilise the men. Um, And uh, to a certain extent, they did become re-equipped to a higher standard and spread out geographically across the vast subcontinent of India. But really, um, nearly all the recommendations, the paltry recommendations that were made by this commission after the event were not adhered to. And, um, you know, the only thing I think that this event does teach you is that ordinary people behave in exemplary fashions. And, you know, one of the things that came through most strongly during our years of research and actually makes the backbone of the book is that ordinary people, whether they be lowly paid, targe staffers working for this five-star hotel or uh, American and British uh, businessmen, holiday makers, tourists who stayed in it, overcame extraordinary odds um, and didn't know that they would behave that way. So in a sense, there's a, less- a positive lesson to be learned, which is that humans um, will out
2: an um, extraordinary
1: situation. Yeah,
2: there's some great stories of heroism in the book, from um, um, many, many, many guests and many, many staff members. The, the real heroes on the night were the Taj staffers yep. who saved hundreds of lives.
0: And also, this, you, you capture the sheer terror that was going on inside the hotel. Of course, those people not knowing how large the, the invasion force was, and just the, the absolute fear that ran rampant, particularly through the guests and some of the staff.
2: Yeah, I mean, while we all kind of remember that night and remember watching it unfold on TV in the same way that we all remember watching 9-11 happening with horror live on television, the people inside the hotel didn't have that benefit because the the power was off, the televisions were gone, the people's cell phones had died because they couldn't charge them up, so they had no idea what was going on outside. All they could hear, they, they, they were stuck in their rooms and in sort of under tables in darkened restaurants and in the kitchens. All they could hear was the sound of... AK-47 rounds booming around the hotel and trying to judge. I mean, we interviewed many people who spent the hours trying to work out with them, with their husbands, wives, whatever, how close the rounds were getting, were they getting closer, and then on top of the fact that the gunmen were rampaging around the hotel, they then set the top floors on fire. So as well as being worried that you would be the next person to be executed because they went along several corridors and executed people in their rooms, was the fact that if they didn't get you, then the fire would... And all the time you're looking out of your window thinking, where are the emergency services? And the streets outside the hotel were completely and utterly empty. There wasn't a single flashing light. There was just a big corral of reporters filming you stuck inside your room. So, I mean, put yourself in that situation. What on earth would you have decided to do?
1: And, um, you know, people, people conjured for us that evening, um, sitting in the dark, many of them soaking wet as the sprinklers came on, um, listening to the inferno burning in the corridor, touching the door and, you know, the door feeling hot, unable to break the glass because the glass was, was shatterproof, uh, explosive-proof glass. Wondering how or where they could hide, where where would be safe, um, and uh, you know, that's the kind of fear that, that can never be conjured in the reporting of those events. We kind of move on so quickly to the next one. That's you know, the next uh, terrorist outrage that supersedes the first, and, and yet the, the human drama was extraordinary. I mean, particularly as Cathy says, by the Taj staffers, many of whom threw themselves in the path of bullets and explosives to save their guests, which is an extraordinary corporate culture within that hotel.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and the lowliest members of staff were the ones that kind of suffered the most, as I'm thinking particularly there's one caretaker who was involved in a rescue operation trying to evacuate some of the guests from uh, from the kitchens on the first floor of the hotel. And as in the middle of the evacuation, the gunman, having listened to various newspaper reports and guests talking live on TV from this very place, they worked out where, where these people were and they burst into the kitchens just as the people were being evacuated and this caretaker just turned around, not thinking obviously for his own life, and ran into the path of the gunman trying to distract them away mm. from the guests who were fleeing down a back staircase. And he died as a result, as did seven other chefs who, who basically did the same thing. And, uh, and the guests, the foreign foreigners and the Indian guests who'd been hiding in that area was, were saved as a result of that. I mean, that, those are the real stories of heroism that are in the book.
0: Kathy Scott-Clark, Adrian Levy, their book is The Siege, 68 Hours Inside the Taj Hotel. It's just out from Penguin. Kathy, Adrian, I thank you both so much for spending time with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. you very much. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.